Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. If you like my theme music there, that is Ken Vandermark. The song is called Turn Your Head. It is from his album Utility Hitter, and that is copywritten, 21st Mobile ASCAP. Thank you very much for listening today. It means a lot that I that you're here or wherever you are listening to it. If you're on a stroll, if you're headed to, to, to your job, or if you're embezzling money from your company. I don't judge. As long as you're listening, I, I appreciate it. It means the world to me. Um, today's guest is an incredible guest. He's an author of 15 books. Uh, Always Running is one of them. It's a bestseller. It's about his gang days in um, Los Angeles. And it's uh, the book is in libraries and books. It's uh, to, often used to help uh, youth stay away from the gang world and to learn about how harsh of a reality that can be. Luis J. Rodriguez is an incredible man. He was also the Poet Laureate of Los Angeles. He does a lot of activist work. Um, I usually I got so caught up in this conversation that I forgot at the end of the interview to ask him where we can find him so he emailed me and told me some things I need to share with you. Not need, I want to, because you should. Um, go to his website, luisjrodriguez.com. Also go to elchucha.org. Uh, we conducted this interview in his bookstore and cultural center that he opened in Silmar, California. Um, it's a beautiful place. It's an incredible place. I spent a lot of money after the interview buying books and a coffee mug that I love. Um, also, he has a podcast with his wife, which is really incredible. It's called The Hummingbird and Cricket Hour, and uh, I've really been enjoying listening to that podcast. It's very informative and uh, eye-opening and enlightening, if you will. So please check out all those things. Um, if you've been a longtime listener of the show, and I know some of you have been, and, and you want to be a part of the bigger experience, the community of uh, fans and listeners who uh, listen to the show... Um, I have a Patreon uh, where I do bonus episodes. I do commentary on every episode. Um, I do a, I, the commentary for this episode is already up. I talk about how Luis J. Rodriguez and I met and the journey and some of the things we talked about afterwards. And Because uh, we have a lot of interconnected things. And there's also a story uh, about something that happened to me a couple weeks ago after I did the interview. Uh, I ran into somebody who he has affected personally and inspired in life. So I tell that story on the Patreon. So patreon.com slash Matt Dwyer. Subscribers get all this great content. There's pictures of the El Chucha uh, bookstore. Uh, I also, some of my bonus episodes, uh, I have Lorraine Newman from Saturday Night Live, George Went from Cheers. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff there. So please, if you can subscribe, that would help me out greatly. Also, if you can't subscribe, do me a favor and just tell a friend about the show. Help spread the word. That would really help me. Get me more listeners. Tell your friends, hey, there's this dorky guy, but he talks to fascinating people. Um, or also rate and review the show on iTunes. That would also be incredibly helpful. And I have a catalog of 166 episodes at this point. So there's many episodes you can enjoy. There's uh, Wayne Kramer, there's former Black Panther Pete O'Neill, David Yao from the Jesus Lizard, Rodney Anonymous from the uh, legendary punk band, the Dead Milkman. There's I've talked to some really great people and my library is really I'm something I'm proud of. Um, if you like my podcast, listen to Hunk with Mike Bridenstine or Kilgallen's Pub with Joe Kilgallen. Those are two uh, podcasts I listen to when uh, I'm feeling... Uh, like I need some comfort. They they they're, they're really great and fun podcasts, and I, they're very s similar ish to mine. So if you like mine, check check those out. Uh, this intro has been really hard to get through because my wife was up all night. She is eight months pregnant or seven months pregnant, and uh, she had. Um, we thought we were going to have a little pre preterm labor last night. So, but everything's okay. She's sleeping as I record this. Life is good. I'm going to be a father of my second daughter in two months from today. So that's pretty good, right? And uh, I won't. hopefully it won't affect my podcasting because I'm already burning life at both ends of the candle, which I think usually means you party a lot, but I, I haven't been partying. I just I just doing dad stuff, doing the dad stuff. Anyway, enough of my loodly-doos. 
Please listen and enjoy this incredible interview with a phenomenal man, Luis J. Rodriguez. There's an authenticity that you have to get to somehow in your art, you know. That is a, how was that a struggle to get to that point where you were just bare bones honest? No, it was absolutely a struggle. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I grew up being the, the loud mouth in a world of silent people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. People who kept their stories to themselves. It's like people who went through war and they won't talk about war. So my family was like war torn um, from the Mexican Revolution all the way to whatever happened after that. And they would just don't say nothing, don't talk about nothing. The only time you can get them to open up was when they started getting drunk, and then they would sing songs. And it's like the Irish, you know. They I was going to say, yeah, they get drunk, then they're singing, <laughs> then they're telling the stories, and then the tears and all the everything. So they're like that, you know. But generally, they were people that just don't say nothing. And I was a very uh, interested in story. I was always interested in talking and hearing. I love stories, and so I was different. I was not like everybody expected. You know, so the trouble with me was I can look at the world and judge it. It was hard to judge myself. And that's what my books ended up being, by looking at myself in relationship to all that. But to open up to my own flaws and brokenness and everything, because I realized if I'm going to be whole, I'm going to have to go through that. Those, those, those wounds, whatever they were, I had to go through them. And that, that's hard to do. Yes. When I discovered that in, in authors that I liked as a young man, it really, I felt like if I exposed these flaws, yeah. you can't get at them first, is yeah, what, where a, I... It's a, like a protection thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people, especially when you, you, you... I don't know if you worked in prisons, but you see a lot of guys, that's what they do. They're protecting themselves from anybody seeing how weak they really are. And that's why they act with this veneer. That can be scary to people who don't know. You know, the tattoos all over, mm-hmm. you know, they're all buffed up, they're the way they look at you, and then after a while you realize they're, they're actually very um, vulnerable, you know, and and that's what you got to get to. That's, it is a hard thing, but it's worth it. And have you found, have you broken through that with your work in prisons? Um, it, it works because with writing, I teach writing. I also do poetry, all these things, and I do healing circles every once in a while, but it all is aimed towards... The wholeness that comes from going through the brokenness, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and it's a hard thing. It's not therapy because obviously I don't have no therapy degrees or nothing. But it's very healing. And the writing that I do is healing in that they begin to examine their life, which is important. As you know, even we try not to examine it. That means all the way in and out. You got a house full of rooms and a basement. <laughs> Get through it. <laughs> Get to the basement, you know. And uh, so you got to reveal all these things. And then I, t- I try to evoke, I ask them, evoke something of death. You're bringing stuff out. You're bringing, but I mean, when you're bringing it out, it could be just rage. Usually that's what it is. But underneath all the rage is grief. And they have to get to that too. And then joy comes up when you get through that. So then the last thing I tell them, how do you express it? How do you shape it? How do you make it so it's palatable for people? Because some of that stuff is hard. You can't just say, I murdered five people. Oh, and you, know, <laughs> you got to talk about a lot of things that make it palatable. How do you shape that material into something that people can grasp from knowledge, from some understanding, some honesty, something that means something to them? You know. Do you still find it hard to dig that deep, or after all these decades of writing? Um, it's. I think it's getting better. It's always a hard thing, though. It's never easy. Uh, but it's getting better for me. I've been, for one thing, I've been sober for going at 27 years, so that really helps, you know. Because I think a lot of the the drinking, a lot of the drugs that everybody does is really hiding, being in another world because you don't want to be in that world mm-hmm. that you're trying to run from, you know, the world you're trying to numb from, the world. That you, you, so you're, but when you don't have that no more, guess what? All these things surfaces, all the rage and all the pain and all the grief, and then you have to deal with it, or or you go back to the the original thing of I just don't want to deal with it. I'm going to numb myself. So. Why do you think people glorify like drunk writers? Oh, that's a very good question. I, I think. Oh, I think there's two reasons. I used to love Charles Bukowski so much because I was a drunk. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I can relate to the guy. 
Uh, when you stop drinking and then you see Charles Bukowski, and I'm not saying he's not a good poet. I think he's one of the poets. He's a real poet. But it, when you see about him, you know how he was a very highly troubled person. But he, anybody that can be that troubled and find poetry, you got to give him credit. Yeah, you know? yeah. But I think the glorification thing is really over. It's really not right. It's not really what you want to glorify him for. You want to glorify him that he found some language in the midst of all his madness. That's what you want to look at. He found language and story. He found some very powerful imagery. And that, to me, is what makes it worthwhile. He had a great line about uh, when somebody asked him about his beatings mm. and if he was resentful about it, his childhood beatings, and yeah. he said it taught him literature, which I always found such a pr- as a profound statement. I think it is. I think that's what I try to get these guys to realize. Whatever you've been through, there's, there's an art at the end of it. And the art will take you there if you follow it. Um, uh, because it's all trying to be artful. You know, people don't realize everything that human beings are is to be artful. People don't know that. That's what it is. Everything you've been through, good and bad, is to be artful about it in some way or the other. And the first important work of art is you, because we're a creative person. We're in a creative process. The real masterpiece that people are really looking is that you become the masterpiece. You know what I'm saying? So that's 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 the only way to do it. Go through the art; it'll take you where it needs to go if you follow it all the way. Yeah, it's. I, I came from a working class family, yeah. and it doesn't. Those environments don't encourage. No, absolutely not. I was uh, put down for loving to read. Um, I was knocked around after I let go of the drugs and gangs and everything. I uh, and I wanted to be a writer. It was like the worst thing I could be. It's almost like they're all, my family was almost saying, why don't you go back to drugs and gangs? You're better off than being a writer. What's wrong with you? It was like it was an encouragement. Again, I, I'm sure, as you know, working class people, you know, you don't blame people. They're survivors. They're trying to survive. They want practical things because they, they, they don't have the luxury to look at non-practical things as a solution. They lose their imaginations, unfortunately. And then, and then uh, they try to kill everybody else. Their own kids are being done. Stop dreaming. Stop doing all these things. Um, Maya Angelou had that story where she wanted to write and read, and people were knocking around. She, I think she had one family member that helped her get through it. You know, and in other words, you got to find a way to get through that. But most people were like, why are you wasting your time? And I was one of these voracious readers and then eventually writer that nobody could understand. It wasn't in my neighborhood. It was. It's not in the ethos of working class. Work with your hands. You know, get up early and work. You know, good and hard. Don't complain. Don't explain that kind of thing. Yeah. Did you find resistance from because like I have Mary Carr talks about how a lot of the writing circles are very academic and it's very white collar and sort of upper class yeah. money. Did you f- yeah. and that she found resistance because she was you know from Texas and I didn't go to those classes. <laughs> I didn't get. I didn't go. So I learned writing um, by becoming a journalist, which was helpful, without no degree, and I did it with a lot of help with people who could see something I was doing, and then helped me get through. I worked in daily newspapers. I worked in. Um, my magazines, and I worked in news radio for many years. So I was working for CNN, Westinghouse, NBC. I did all this stuff. Um, I did it no, without no college degrees. Even my, my all my novels and short stories and poetry, I learned on my own. I would uh, maybe attend one or two workshops, and I took classes at night, like at East LA College. I took creative writing, speech, and journalism, just so I can get into it. But then I never really... I just learned on my own. And so I don't have that, but I do know what you're talking about. I end up going to some of those writing um, master's programs. I do see the, I guess, the, neat, the elite nature of it. You know, um, hardly anybody of color or even working class, to be honest with you. And I do see that they have another a way of looking at language in the way I do. I like to see language be emotionally driven and powered, and I like it to have a... Um, um, a connection to authentic details and authentic anchoring, you know, these are some of the things that some of them aren't necessarily doing. So I, I, I've seen it, but I, luckily for me, I didn't go through it. So, because I think they would have tried to kick the my my whatever I'm about out of me, you know. Right. Yeah. yeah it seems like some of those writers are more about gym, word gymnastics than I call it, I call it <laughs> than having literary acro- acrobatics. And uh, an amazing, some genius stuff, but I, I'm, I'm judging, <laughs> I don't want to say too much, I judge these uh, poetry contests, you know, that are very high-end, 
Amazing work, I have to say. But I do get that kind of work. I said, these people know how to get through the lines. They know how to, you know, metaphors, and they got all kinds of things. But then I don't get much out of it. The reward after you work very hard. People say, well, you, you got to work hard for your literature. Yeah, but there should be a good reward at the end of it. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you read all the stuff. You try to understand what they're saying. I don't get it. You try to get into the end. It's like, they didn't really say much. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. So that that's a problem. Yeah. yeah. Do you, is there specific traits that relate to what makes an L.A. writer? Ooh, that's a good one. I think L.A. is, and I may be wrong, but I've had the privilege of living in other cities, um, Bay Area, uh, the desert, of course, San Bernardino, but also Chicago. I'm a Chicagoan. Yeah, so Chicago and L.A. to me are very interesting in two ways. They're different cities, obviously, as you know, completely different. But there's one thing about them. There's a working class ethos in both of them. They're the two most working-class cities in the country. Uh, people don't know that. They think of Chicago. They got that, you know. <laughs> um, you know, Chicago's mills, Chicago's stockyards. L.A. has all of that, but it also has something that Chicago doesn't have. It has this one industry town, Hollywood. It has this kind of uh, um, illusion-making world. Mm-hmm. It's just fantasy land, you know, and... Um, Disneyland is perfect for the LA area because <laughs> like you go there and, and it's like that you got that world that you have to cut through and it's very disarming LA because you go through these suburbans everything looks nice and clean underneath there's a lot of violence and pain and abuse you know what I'm saying LA hides it Chicago to me is more in your face um it's just there. You see, the people are nice because they were genuinely nice. And when they mean to you, they genuinely mean to you. L.A. has a problem, and this is good and bad. L.A. has a problem in that it's, there's a lot of stuff you don't see. What you see is not always what you get. But what I find, especially with poetry and literature here, people that get to the bottom, they end up getting right to the core. So you have these amazing writers, just like Charles Bukowski, who I think is a great poet for all his issues, like um, um, Sister Himes like Walter Mosley, like Wanda Coleman, um, you know, uh, even Holly Prado or all these other great writers who are coming out of a, another end of this world, of, of the world that I come from, but there's, there's something there. You get, there's a depth in L.A. that I think you can get to, but you have to really understand that because you can go to a lot of superficial things sometimes before you get to that. Yeah, that... When I was thinking of that question, because I, growing up in Chicago, I've read a lot of Chicago writers. I was a huge yeah. Mike Royko fan. Yeah. yeah. And I. Nelson Algren and all Yes. That. Oh, yeah, huge yeah, Algren yeah. fan. Oh, yeah. But I, I saw the, I saw that similarity and I was curious about that because I was yeah. like, there is a very similar yeah. feel to LA writers yeah. and Chicago writers. And I think it is sort of the no yeah. bullshit. In, like, yeah. And what it is is the working class nature of both those cities. Yeah. I mean, they're, of course, you know, Pittsburgh, there's a lot of working-class cities, but for big, big cities, we're the two most working-class. Because San Francisco and New York has a lot of working-class, but that's not really what they're about, you know, not yeah. really. They're banking, they're financial, they're, there's other things that are much more prominent there, but L.A. and Chicago are working-class. This is where you also have the two largest gang cities, because I think gangs, especially urban gangs, are really industrial products of industrial world. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that's why... Uh, Detroit and all these cities have those kind of issues, but Chicago and LA take it because they're, those are two largest manufacturing centers. Yeah, that's. Are there perceptions of LA that like? Because you talked about that, how people mm-hmm. think of it. it was like when I moved here, I didn't know much about LA, yeah. and I was quickly learned that it was a very working class city, yeah. and it's like a very complex city. And yeah. when when people yeah, yeah. say they hate LA, I'm like. You don't know L.A. Oh, I, I'm with <laughs> you there. I'm telling you, I, I saw a lady talking to something. It was some writer's conference. She was talking to some guy from England. She's from L.A. She says, ah, L.A.'s terrible. And she, he goes, I love L.A. I'm, I'm here. I'm this, like, very amazing place. She was knocking it down. And I, I had to get in on it. I shouldn't have. It's none of my business. <laughs> I, but I told the guy, listen, I'm from L.A., and I don't know about what she's talking about, but I love L.A. I think L.A.'s got a lot here worth seeing, worth understanding, and again, the working class stuff is very deep, especially if you go to certain communities, like even South Central. It's very similar to Southside Chicago in that it's rough, man. People have our time, but it's so working class. You know, people go to work who can work. 
And when they're not working, you get the feel of it. They want to be working. They just can't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a different thing. So uh, I think that's what people don't understand. East LA, you go, it's this big, huge working class area that's lost a lot of industry. So then you see why people aren't making it. Uh, if people could get that, then they'll get the idea that LA and Chicago, um, like maybe in England, Manchester, and who knows, are that's what makes them who they are. That's what make, gives them a vibrancy. You know? It would... What do you think when you hear people say that L.A. has no real culture? Well, I don't believe that at all. <laughs> I, I, don't I You know, and when I talk about the superficiality of it, I get that part. Disneyland, yeah. to me, is not culture. You know, I mean, it is up to a point, but it's not the culture. It's a, it's, it, there is a lot of fantasy land making here. But underneath, but around all that, though, is really uh, what, what interests me. You know, like downtown L.A., just like Skid Row, just like uh, East L.A. I mean, huge barrios, one way after another. People don't even know East L.A. I've taken people from NBC that work in Culver City or whatever, in Central City. I've taken them. They never imagined this is L.A. They've never been there. They don't understand the working class flavor and people walking the streets because they say nobody walks in L.A. Well, go to East L.A. People walking all the time. <laughs> uh, it's just not what people understand. And that's not the story that gets told about L.A. because I think there's a narrative that gets out there. La La Land. <laughs> that yeah. narrative, I don't know where they get that from. I don't know anything about La La Land, but they, that narrative gets out there. But once you get, to, like you say, you come out here, you see it. That's why a lot of people from the Midwest love L.A. because it's like, it's it's Chicago, but with nice weather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I lived in Echo Park for oh, yeah. uh, what, 18 years ago. Oh, Echo Park's an amazing area. And it, I spent a lot of time in Wicker Park in Chicago, yeah, yeah, and yeah, it was yeah. it was the, pretty much the same. You know, I lived in both communities, too. Oh, really? I lived in Echo Park and Wicker Park. <laughs> Where'd you live in Wicker Park? You know, I lived on Evergreen. Well, Nelson Algren, they named yeah. the street. He used to live there. I lived in a, a, a basement apartment. You know how they go, a garden apartment, they call it. Yeah, I used to live in one by, of the... By the train station. So I, yeah. I, the trains would go by. But, you know, it... it, it the texture of the cities are different, obviously. But I do think that underneath there is that. And uh, Echo Park is a good example. It's it's very much like a Midwestern community. There's others like that, but everybody talks about Echo Park in particular. But it's really like, yeah, I, I, when I was living, I lived in Humble Park, Wicker Park, and then uh, Logan Square when I was in Chicago. Um, those were communities that were like, I think, full of life, full of people that wanted to do things. And art, art was happening everywhere. And to me, that's that's the beauty of L.A. too. It's a very creative place. People got to remember, so is Chicago. Yeah, I knew I was officially from Los Angeles when I started getting really angry when people yeah, <laughs> spoke ill of it because I was like, it's a beautiful, unique. Yeah. Yes, it is. And one of the things about it, it's, 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 its strength is also its weakness, but its strength is that it's huge. It's also what makes it a hard city to maneuver. But the fact that it's huge is you really could get to interesting communities that you wouldn't have imagined if you hadn't accidentally stopped by or some for some reason. Now that I got Waze, you know, Waze takes you to these neighborhoods you never even yeah. seen before. And I'm, I, I'm stopping. And I never knew this place existed. There's a lot of interesting neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, in your earlier day, well, you still do, but you've done a lot of work with uh, education and mm -hmm. working with people of poverty. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, do you feel like it has gotten better or are we still in sort of the same place as we've been, say, 40, 50 uh, years ago? I think this whole education process in the United States, I've written, I, I got a new book, it's got all these essays. One of them is about education. It's lost what I call the spirit of learning and the spirit of teaching. And you can't have one without the other. Kids are naturally learners. They have that spirit. But if you go to enough schools, you're going to lose it. <laughs> you don't want to learn no more in school. It doesn't mean you don't want to learn. It's just you don't want to learn in school. Teachers who used to have the spirit of teaching, they love it. After a while, they don't want to be teaching, really. They're the first ones at the door when the bell rings. You know what I'm saying? So something's going on. Something is killing the spirit of learning and teaching in the schools. And that's what I'm concerned about. What is that? Well, it's um, testing, over-testing. It's administration. It's trying to industrialize kids so that they go in some kind of industry versus be who you are, be who you're supposed to be. What are your gifts? What what, what are you meant to do in this world? No, they're, they're constantly flowing people into industries. Like, for example, there's, there's a very large creative economy in LA it's huge and but if you go to some of the art schools all art schools almost all of them 
are gearing the kids for that industry. So they don't really want you to be an artist like special, unique, and they want you to learn to do good art so you can work in that industry. That to me is very debilitating. And people may not see that. Maybe somebody gets in there and makes a lot of money, but then eventually they're going to realize I'm not really the artist I, I should be. I'm just making a lot of money. Um, so I think that that's what's killing it. Uh, other things are coming in and killing what education should be, which is bringing out who you have inside of you. That doesn't seem to happen. No, <laughs> no, no, not at all. And then, of course, with all these charter schools and public schools and private schools and vouchers, they're just killing it even worse, you know. I mean, this idea that I want a special school for only my kid, it's a very privileged idea, because I don't like what the other schools are teaching them, okay? And then everybody's got their own little school teaching their own little kids. That, to me, is a really bad situation. It, yeah, it seems to only breed more kind of a more closed-mindedness. Exactly. Because yeah. we want, I have a daughter, and we yeah. want to make sure she has a diverse educational yes. experience. Yeah, which is going to be just trouble in it. But it's better they're in that trouble than the trouble that I'm hiding my kid, and I'm going to teach them what I want them to think, and, and they will never connect with anybody. And they go out in the world, and they get like, what happened? Look, nobody told me about this world. Do you think, because you had the FBI kind of on your ass yeah. for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it, does it seem to you that the government still does, it, they don't like the poor yeah. organized, and they don't like yeah. them educated, and it seems like with certain socialist vibes in our politics right now that yeah. they're, they're not too keen on that. You f- see the media fighting. It's it. their fault. You know what? Socialism is not a big deal in this country. And the reason it's getting bigger is because they've been, it's their fault. They treat people pretty badly. They took away as much of a possible livable world. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. All this homelessness that doesn't need to happen. The reason why there's homelessness is because this is a successful city. This is a successful state. The fifth largest economy, California. LA's got a GDP greater than Saudi Arabia. But because it's successful under capitalism, a lot of people are going to be driven away. You know, driven out. It's just the way the nature of it is. So they don't know that success is what's creating the problems. So I think they helped the situation where now these ideas that they thought were terrible are starting to find home, especially with young people. Socialist ideas, uh, ideas that everybody should be taken care of, ideas of justice is starting to permeate, especially with young people. It's their fault because they couldn't incorporate any of that in a proper way, which they tried. They just went after everybody, and they started the class warfare. They even called it well, well, class culture war, they called it. And, um, and now this is what you're going to get. People, especially young people, who have some imagination, are saying, I want something different, and I want to look at something different. You know, so now they're open to these things. And again, so many of us that maybe were thinking that way had a hard time to convince anybody. The, the rulers of this country have convinced people better than anybody. You know, now whether we get organized about it and do really do something about it, that's a different story. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But I do think that they kind of created a situation in which people are open to these ideas that they thought nobody would ever be open to. You know, Soviet Union's gone. There's no more socialist camp, really. It's a failure. It's all failure. But yet people are coming back. It's getting renewed in young people's heads again. And socialism to me isn't really about Soviet system. What it really is is um, equalitarianism. You know, can we have a society that's abundant for everybody? And people want to call it socialist or whatever they want to call it, but it's really what it is. is what they're really saying is, hey, man, we have so much resources. Can't people have their basic needs met? Can't they have proper health care? Can't they go to school without having to go crazy loans? Can't, you know, they're questioning the very basis of what capitalism has done. So I think that's where we're at now. Do you think there's less organization than there used to be? I think there is a weird kind of organization. I think being totally organized is counter to what people are thinking. I think people like the idea of, I'm with you, but I'm not organized by you. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I don't think people want to get organized so much as they want to say, I'm part of something bigger. I think movement is really the better word. 
there's a movement for things. People want to be part of movements. Uh, the Me Too thing or whatever might be Black Lives Matter. All of a sudden, there are movements. There's all kinds of people involved. They're not necessarily being organized by Black Lives Matter, even though that I'm sure they do a lot of organization. They don't, it's not about, I want to be organized by you. And I don't want to join this organization necessarily. You know, it used to be years ago, you got to join this group, that group, and then you, now I don't think it's about people joining a group. Now they're thinking about, I just want to be part of this motion where the world seems to be going, and I want to put myself in there some kind of way, but I don't want to be organized by you or anybody else. That's why parties are having a hard time. All the parties are in crisis. All of, even the Green yeah. Party, and I'm a Green Party guy, but even the Green Party is in crisis. We're all in crisis. Democrats are completely falling apart, but in many ways, that's a good thing. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And the one that isn't, doesn't seem to be falling apart is the Republicans, but they're completely becoming invalid is a is a real answer to what's going on. I think they're terrified and they're yeah. grasping at the because yeah. those rich old white guys are v- quickly becoming in the minority. It's very true. And I think that's what they're scared about. Yeah. They're losing whatever they thought they had. It's going away little by little. So I think that's what they're scared of. To them, the battle against socialism is really that, the battle against my power and control over what I have had power and control over so for so long. Do you think the Democratic Party could potentially fold? I think it can. I think it's practically doing it now. It feels like it feels like it's not going to make it so so rent. You got so many, and maybe that's the way it should be. But you got so many different things in the Democratic Party, um, and so um, now they're all concerned because Bernie looks like he's the front runner. And by the time people hear this, who knows what's going to happen? They're doing everything can to sabotage him, which they did last time. But again, I don't think it's about Bernie, honestly. I think it's about these ideas that are tapping into an imagination. And that, to me, is what's really scary for anybody. And the Democratic Party has lost its imagination, just like the Republicans. See what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that's what's making them both trying to figure out what to do. Trump is one guy, and he's He's more. He's bigger than the Republican Party, which is really weird. Uh, somebody from a party, the party should be bigger than them. Trump is bigger than Republicans. But then what's happened with Bernie is in many ways, Bernie's bigger than Democrats. And they, they don't know what to do with that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So well, we'll see. It'd be like two movements clashing uh, if, if they eventually don't sabotage Bernie to the point where he's not able to get in there. Do you think... Because people thought like Trump has, for lack of words, rallied the racism in this country where I feel like Mm -hmm. he just exposed what's always been there. Well, you know, it's been, yeah. And it's, it got hidden away a little bit. It was always very out there. I, I, racism to me has always been there, but it did get hidden away a little bit for some reason. I think maybe what happened with Obama is a lot of people, um, accepted something about Obama, but they also realized that Obama represented a change that some people didn't care for. They're not white. People weren't going to run everything. And Obama was not a big radical, nice guy, great speaker, did some nice things, but he really wasn't a radical. He was really going around with the program. You know, He was more like a, like a Clinton who came back in the office through Obama. That's the way I look at it. But the point is, it changed a lot of things. And People, again, got scared. Where's the white people? I mean, the ones that think about this, most white people don't think about that, but the ones that do, they're thinking, hey, man, white people are losing their privilege, their power, and then they're going crazy. And they're, and, and, and they're people who are very poor. And this is why Bernie is important, because he's tapping to the same people. What, what's scary to them is that Bernie is tapping to that Midwest working class people that Trump was able to tap into, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. and that's what's hurting. There's a way there's a clash going on there, and that's and that they don't know what to do with that because it's actually very close. Bernie's not tapping a whole mess of liberal academic, you know, you know, progressive minded people. He's tapping those people. He's tapping that working class that is struggling to find its way itself. And I'm not talking about working class white. I'm talking about black, brown, and white. Because to me, working class is all colors. When they say white working class, I go, well, there's no white working class. It's one working class, and some of them happen to be white. If you say white working class, you're always putting them away from everybody else. But like, I, I worked in those steel mills. I worked in those factories. White guys, like black guys, like everybody else, we all, there may be privileges, but we all had to work hard, and we all had to come out dirty. We all look the same at the end. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and people are getting 
I mean, wages are continuously being, I mean, it's, it's, it's and, and not even really working class in the sense of they're mostly working at Walmarts. They're working class in the sense of that, but not industry. Industry is really getting hit. It's been getting hit for a long time. But the Reagan period opened up the Walmarting of America. Because during Reagan, people didn't realize is when a lot of these jobs in Chicago, in Pittsburgh, in L.A., all the industrial cities lost so much jobs. And the guy during his period, and it wasn't just him, it was just the process. Four million jobs were lost in industry. Two million jobs were created at the end of his presidency, but they were mostly in the service industry. And mostly Walmart, when now Walmart's the number one employer, it's the number one private employer in the world, if you can imagine. So that's a big change that people aren't taking into, into account. Yeah, every time they say that there's new jobs created, my question is always, are they livable wages? Yeah. And do they offer benefits? Yeah. Because most of them don't. They don't. The, the unions went down. It's nothing that Reagan did. He went after the unions. When people talk about let's make America great again, they're talking about the 50s and 60s when there was actually mostly more unions that had benefits. At those jobs, and also when close to 70, 90% of all rich people were taxed that much. Percentage-wise, they were taxed that much. We want to make make a great game. Let's go back to where we tax these people 90% <laughs> and get unions. They, they don't think about that. But I, they went after unions, and they went after the wages. And, and now you got homeless people who work. Yeah. And then they, they don't got home. I've been close. Yeah. My wife and I had a stretch a few years ago where I was like, we either have to move back or, yeah. I mean, if I didn't have family and friends, yeah. I would have, and I, that, I could have been in a tent. Well, I got three grown men's sons. I love my sons. They're living with us. They were left the house, now they're back. And I get it. I don't even mind. It's hard for them to get out there. These are grown men. One of them has his girlfriend living with her. We got a full house now. People <laughs> <laughs> wife thought we had an empty nest. Got a full house. But that's the nature of the world we're in. They can't go out and get a rent. They can't. They're working. All of them are working. They can't make it. So that's the world they're always upon. Yeah, the rent is, I mean, my rent is over half of my income. Yeah, no, that's not, that's not right. It's yeah. crazy. Do you think that the unions will have a resurgence? Well, you know, it's, I'm, I'm questioning the whole idea of organization. I'm not against organization. Maybe it has to change. I think the unions, I've always been a union guy. I think they're important. I know unions can be corrupt. And all stuff, but, but I find that they're not organized for the time that we're in. I'm not sure what's going to be that kind of organization. It's more like a union of independent contractors. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, because many of us are working not in an industrial blocked model anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Except for the ones that work in Walmart or something. But, you know, people are trying to make a living on their own. They're using the Internet. They're working at home, computers, or whatever they're doing. There, there's not a union for that. There has to be another way of organizing that I think. So I'm looking, I'm challenging the old idea of union organizing the way it used to be mm -hmm. in a different time. I'm saying that could be relevant again, but they have to think about a, another way of organizing. That's an interesting point. And I do think, like, the word movement is far better than yeah. organize. Yeah. And it, we yeah. used to have such a powerful labor movement. And, I know. and it really... It was big. as The whole world looked at it. The whole world learned from us. May Day came from here. So we were on top of what labor movements used to be considered, you know. Um, what, can you tell me about how your store has come about? Because it's, it's a yeah. beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah. And it's kind of like a little oasis in a strip mall. <laughs> <laughs> I but, was, yeah, people come in here and say, wow, it's all beautiful and colorful. And you go out there and it's kind of drabby. But I think the idea being that me and my wife, coming out of Chicago, uh, I lived there 15 years. I, I grew up in L.A., went to Chicago and came out here. Um, we both lived in Chicago, and we learned a lot in Chicago. There's a lot more art. There's black parties. There's art downtown was all art. I was in the slam poetry movement. That was alive and happening. So I was very active in the arts. And then there was these cafes and, and little places where people could hang. And so when we came out here, especially in this part of the valley, there was nothing going on, culturally barren. There was no movie houses. There still isn't. There was no bookstores. There was no real, maybe one or two cafes. There was nothing. So we felt, we saw the big gap. And my wife and I felt like we be, we could do something. And I, I always running my book helped me a lot. Um, I decided to put the money that I made off always running, which was my largest best-selling book, 
and put it in the space. It was almost 20 years ago, 19 years ago, that we created the space. It was quite beautiful. Uh, we went through a lot of terrible times with rent being hiked, and we had to move. We moved three times already. Uh, we lost our equipment, and at one point we had it in a warehouse or our cafe. We had a full cafe. Some crystal meth heads broke through the roof and came down, stole everything, and we lost a lot of stuff. But we're still at it, and we're still here. Look at it. The, the spirit of it is still here. We have all these great staff. We have workshops in music, art, theater, writing. We have uh, we emphasize indigenous, a lot of Native Mexican, um, indigenous cosmology from from Mexico, but also Native American people here, and also from Central America. In other words, we're incorporating so much culture and art and thinking. So it's it's vibrant. And again, it's only books to for half a million people. So for me, it's been. Uh, uh, worth every penny, all the trouble we've been there. And now we're thinking we need to move to a big, bigger permanent space. That's our goal. Yeah. Do you feel like people are, I feel like the climate that we're in, I feel like people are thirsty for poetry again. Yeah. Does it seem that way to oh, you? Oh, I think so. I really think that's, that's I see. I was poet laureate from 2014, 2016. And L.A. has never really been considered a poetry town. You know, New York has poetry, Chicago even, San Francisco. But I'm telling you, man, L.A. is full of poetry. There's poetry in the schools. You know, there's a lot of groups that do slam poetry. There's a big, I was a judge for a big slam po uh, poetry contest for high schools. There was like a thousand people in this big giant uh, auditorium, uh, rooting schools. There's movement, but nobody talks about it. who writes about this. You're not even hearing. There's poetry and open mics all over the place and all over the county, you know, so you have to go drive long distances. We have a regular open mic every Friday. And so <clears throat> I think poetry is uh, well and alive in Los Angeles. I feel like maybe it was it's me, but I feel like poetry was sort of went away for not it was not yeah. in the forefront yeah. I mean in in the 50s and 60s they would be best selling books that I were poetry and that's amazing to me and yeah. it doesn't happen our country has a hard time with poetry <laughs> and I think you know why because it really points to the hollowness of the center of our culture you know where all its money uh, but the material things and everything has a price and nothing sacred that kind of world that we're in is, is destructive to poetry. So poetry is at the margins. You go into the, the working class communities, you go into the poor communities, you go into the people of color communities, you go into the LGBT communities, you go into whatever communities are part of the... They coming out with poetry. There's so much... Poetry is, I think, the art of the voiceless and the forgotten and the pushed aside. In other parts of the world, it's so everybody does poetry. Like you say, in Japan, a poetry book sells three million copies. Here, if you sell 500, you've got a bestseller. You know, you're like, hey, I'm happy. <laughs> it's really sad that poetry is not at the center of our culture, but it's, it's true. And I also think because it's harder to monetize poetry. You know, you can monetize rap even, but they, you know what they do with hip-hop? They had to separate rap from the rest of hip-hop. Mm -hmm. uh, they found a way to monetize everything. Sports, Liberty loves sports, and I was highly... It, they make an industry of everything. I think poetry, even though there's probably aspects of it that's industrial, money-making, mostly it isn't. They don't know how to monetize poetry, especially when it's coming out of the streets. Yeah, that's how I discovered you. I I was feeling uh, like I just felt like my brain wasn't working as well, uh -oh. <laughs> and I felt sort of dull in oh, life. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I bought a compilation book of poetry, uh -oh. and I just I, a lot of them, the names I had already known, yeah, yeah. and I didn't know your name. And I, I was immediately just... Oh, good. I started, and I... That's so great. then I had to seek out more. <laughs> That's great. That's good to know. But, yeah. it's, but it made me realize that poetry, it, it, it invigorates you. It makes you... It does. You know, I, I say it's a way to have a presence in the world. We don't always have that presence. We don't know how to be present in the world, you know. Uh, and I think when I found poetry, it made me have a voice naturally even though I was really like very hard with that on other occasions. Mm -hmm. I could hardly get up and speak. Now I speak all the time, but I could hardly do that. But I could, in poetry, I found my place. In poetry, you belong no matter what's going on. You always belong, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And that's what's important. Belonging is where we're, we're not belonging. Nobody's belonging anymore, especially with all the shifts going on with industry and jobs and homelessness and everything else. People don't feel they belong. The neighborhoods are gone. They're, they're uprooted. No matter what's going on, we're all uprooted. And um, you're uprooted from the Midwest, and a lot of it. So, uh, poetry situates you again. Do you, 
when you sit down to write, do you have a, a poem specifically? Do you have a preconceived idea or do you just go in with a, f- a feeling? Yeah, I prefer to go with the feeling, but uh, I'm not against preconceived ideas because I think some of my best poems came that way. I just, hey, I have an idea and I kept working at it, worked at it, and finally came through. But I think the, the poems that I'm interested in are the ones that find its way through. I'm not even sure where it's going. It just begins to happen. I find that if I get to write, just to write about things, it's things start moving. I was writing about heroin, for example. I don't really write that much about heroin. I was a, a, an addict for about seven years as a youth. I got through it. I don't write too much about it. I have two or three poems now, but I said, I'm going to write. Um, but I didn't know where it was going to go. I just had the general idea. And it went to an interesting place. And, and it hasn't appeared in the book yet. I've been reading it around town. But it really, the place was, to me, heroin, maybe like all drugs and alcohol, is so about not being in pain. And I realized that if I'm going to be alive, i got to learn to live with the pain. The pain is life. Life is pain. Pain is, it's a hard thing to want to have, but it's part of who we are. And as long as I don't want to be in pain, I'm going to always be an addict, you know what I'm saying? Because an addict always wants to get away from anything that causes that kind of, whatever the pain may be, could be heartache. I'm not even talking about physical pain, but I'm talking about the pain inside of you, or whatever it may be. So now I have to address pain. It's a pain in the ass. But <laughs> pain is a pain in the ass. It's in, it's in, <laughs> It's odd that we f- resist so much of yeah. what it is right in front of us, what, uh, life. Because it's like if you think of Buddha's, Buddha's first yeah. thi- uh, thought after enlightenment was yeah. life is suffering, yet we yeah. avoid that at all costs. Yeah. I think that's a weird thing, but I think maybe it's the the luxury of being a, a very powerful country. I'm not sure. I think other countries don't seem to have the same. Maybe some do. Not as bad as we are. I think we can. we tend to hide even as a culture, from the pain of our history, which is really the weirdest one. You know, we can't face our history. It's which astounding. Is weird. And then we can't face the world that we're in. We always, what is white supremacy? What is all that world that Trump is building? And it's a fantasy they made up, and they're totally into it. And they've got Uber, a whole mess of Uber uh, uh, conspiracy theories, and they believe in all of them. But they're living in worlds that ain't even real. And yet they're imposing that world on the rest of us, and that's the problem. We have a hard time with just facing the reality of things, who we are, how we got here, why we're here. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. We just So I think that, that that's a big milieu that we're in that makes drugs and even opioids much more susceptible here. You know what I mean? I mean, the whole world, but not like the U.S., because it's so easy to just not have to face, like you say, what is life. With suffering comes joy. People don't realize that it's not just about suffering. We're all just going to suffer. It's about knowing that the emotional states of human beings are quite varied, multifarious. They go all over the place. But one of the key ones is suffering. And through suffering, you can get through the joy of whatever you're needing to get through. Do you have any advice for a writer who would for like a memoir or how to get to the core of themselves and expose yeah. that? I My biggest advice, and I got it from somebody else, but it made sense to me. You know where I got it from? I got it from um, Arthur Miller. He was, somebody interviewed him and he says that, um, you know, he's writing fiction, but he, obviously he's writing about people he knows, but he goes, I'm always going for the emotional value of a memory. I thought that was the most powerful wow. thing I had heard. Because when you do a memoir, you're not really writing your life story. Maybe if you're doing autobiography or memoirs, whatever the people <coughs> want to call them. Your memoir is a period of your life that you're dealing with. But what really gives it the details and the and the, the power is that it's an emotional value in those memories. I mean, you might summarize the moments of your life, and then you get to those details and you stretch out that whole, de- you get into the feelings, the thoughts, whatever, traumatic painful, even amazing, beautiful, you're writing about it that way. So I, I, I found that to be the most important, compelling thing about memoir writing. Let the emotional value of those memories really come through. I read a lot of memoirs, and but I've heard some, some authors say that, that they're sort of, they're frowned upon by literary circles, like it's a, which I totally disagree with. I think yeah. it's, what, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, I don't. Again, I'm not really in those literary circles. <laughs> <laughs> I get it, though. I do read about stuff. I think what people got weird about memoirs is um, they thought it was too easy. 
it's better to use your imagination. But I think they found out that that's not true. Uh, a memoir has imagination. <laughs> you know, the difference is this: there's a trust you have with your reader. When I'm making a story up, they know I made it up, even if it's based on real people. They know it's made up. When you're telling your memoir, what the trust is, you're not making nothing up, even if it's inaccurate. <laughs> you know, and I mean, memory is flawed. I'm using an emotional value. I'm giving color to things that maybe wasn't colored that way. So people should know it's not a journalistic account. I didn't go around interviewing all the people that I talked to to get the dialogue I have in my memoir. I have to remember what they said as much as I could. So they give you a trust, but then that's why you don't play with it. Then, like, some memoirs started really being fiction that they claimed to be memoirs, and people jumped on them. It's like, look, you're ruining the trust. We trusted that you were going to tell the truth as best you can. I get you're not going to be totally accurate, but you can't move away from that. And that's where people messed up. They started doing novels, and people said, why don't you write a memoir because there's more money in it? That's why two or three of these memoirs got attacked because they were actually making things up, and that's not what people want to hear. So memoir is that interesting, weird, in-between, in-betwixt genre. It's, it's, I don't know if it's a state of, of, of marketing and, uh, like you said, monetizing, But because mm-hmm. I was working on one, and somebody told me, mm-hmm. oh, you need a hook. And I'm like, isn't the story en- enough to be a hook? <laughs> it's like, I think I, I was, a, it confused me. I think, I think the best thing to do is just tell a good story in, in a good, authentic way. And I think, to me, that's the best thing. Um, the, a hook will be there probably, most right. likely. But, I mean, I don't know if that's what you want to do ahead of time. Just be real. Again, when you're real, you're going to also have, be flawed in that reality, but that's okay. Be as real as you can. Memoir should be the trust with your reader that you're going to tell the story as true as you can be. And true doesn't mean factually accurate. It just means to be true. You know, I mean, it's like fiction is true, but everybody gets that as fiction. It's right. made up. You know. uh, to, to end it, this, uh, yeah. and thank you very much. Oh, yeah, yeah. Are there any writers that you would, uh, that aren't well known that you would like to suggest? Uh, I or think there's a number of really great um, Chicano and other Latino writers happening right now. Um, I would recommend um, Javier Zamora, a Salvadorian writer who, he's writing poetry. I think he's working on a memoir. Uh, uh, his last poetry book was called the, uh, Undocumented. So he's telling that story about a migrant coming over. And we need those kind of stories. His one of the most powerful ones. Um, Erica Sanchez has got this book about her growing up Mexican in the U.S., but as a daughter that always doing the right thing but never being fully recognized, never being fully seen, you know, that struggle, that's important. There's a few, uh, um, there's, uh, I'm trying to remember some other names, but there's a lot of really good young writers coming up, and they're trying to break away from the story that my granddaughter, who's a, a, a master's in poetry program participant in Rutgers University, says the abuelo story. In other words, we've told all our stories about my grandmother, my grandfather, so they're moving away from it. They want to hit new ground. So a lot of these Chicano and or Latinx writers are writing about other areas that weren't written about, not just, hey, my family and, you know, that what she called the abuelo story, you know. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate it. It was great. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. Please remember to rate and review the show, thematdwyer.com, patreon.com slash mattdwyer. Help support the show, tell your friends about it, and support podcasting in general. It's a great form. And I would like to say in the words of one of my favorite guests, former Black Panther, Pete O'Neill, power to the people.